Welcome, everyone. This is the Bread of Life, and I'm Joel Van Hoogen. I'm the director of the international mission, Church Partnership Evangelism. We have full-time missionaries stationed in North America, South America, Europe, and Asia, and we have ministry representatives carrying forward our commitment to equip and engage the body of Christ in evangelism, discipleship, and church planting in a number of countries around the globe. To learn more about our work and to inquire how you can help us raise up disciple-making disciples, go to traincpe.org. I'm also the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. Our great pursuit in God's Word is always to find the road that leads to Christ, exalts His gospel, and finds in Him our complete sufficiency in all things. You can learn more about our fellowship by going to breadoflifeboise.org. Today we again go back into our archives about 20 years and continue a study in the lives of the 12 apostles. Today we'll look at the life of Thomas. John chapter 11 tells the story of Jesus being called to go to Lazarus' home for he is ill. Just prior to this, Jesus had fled that region where Lazarus lived because the religious leaders near Jerusalem were seeking to take his life. Jesus also had been telling his disciples about his impending death in Jerusalem at this time. When the request came for Jesus to return to that area, the disciples understandably didn't want him to go. Jesus told them two things. He told them that they need not worry because he was working in the full light of day. In other words, nothing could overtake them that he wasn't aware of. Second, he told them that Lazarus was sleeping and he would go wake him up. They understood Jesus to mean that Lazarus was getting better. Lord, if he's getting better, we don't need to go to him, they said. Jesus corrected them. I mean, Lazarus is dead. But I am glad because I am going to do something that will build up your faith. Now that's as far as I'll take you before the message today. In this setting, we are going to meet Doubting Dower Thomas. Today, we're going to look at Thomas's faults. But hang in there. Tomorrow, we're going to see that Thomas, with all of his faults, still is someone who we can aspire after. Someone who actually had a lot going for him. You know, there are those psychological profiling tests that you can take, and they usually fit people into four different categories. You know, there's the one category, the perpetually perky, and the other category is maybe the perpetually morose. And then there's the category, the pocket protector, analyzer, doer. And then the other category is the military barking order, sergeant wanting to be in control of everything. Those are basically the kind of the four categories that are run around in these psychological profiling tests. There's one out there that had been popular for some time, and I can't remember all the names of the categories. One is choleric, one is sanguine. One is melancholy. Someone else will help me with the other one. The other one is, I don't know, uh, you know, annoyingly cheerful or something like that. But anyhow, there are these four categories. Oh, this was very popular, particularly back in the early 90s and late 80s. I've had a number of individuals tell me, you know, you're just a melancholic. You know, you are definitely sanguine. You know, you are a choleric. That's what you are. You're a choleric. And every time that someone identifies me that way, I always feel as though they're not identifying me, that they don't know what I'm like. It's very interesting, about five years ago, for whatever reason, I had the opportunity to have someone give me one of these tests. And so it's the very first time I'd ever taken one of these tests. I decided to take it. And interestingly enough, I scored evenly in all four categories, which means that I'm not sanguine or choleric. I'm melancholic. I'm, I'm schizophrenic or, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm just very confused. I'm a complicated person. So 
They were all, in a sense, right, but then again, they were all wrong. Well, this is the way in which people tend to, when they're doing a study of the lives of the apostles, judge the apostles as Jesus Christ. And yet they go by with a lot less information than we go by with when people try to tell us what we're like. We pick up a few select verses where some of these individuals are spoken of. And, you know, it may be easier to identify what Peter was like, but it's pretty hard for us to really get a good handle on what Andrew and Philip were like or what Thomas was like. Thomas was mentioned eight times in the New Testament, but five of those times he's simply named in a list of individuals that are being listed. Only three times do we have Thomas mentioned where he's actually speaking and revealing anything of himself by the words he says. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I would want to be judged on three different times in which someone overheard and recorded the words that I said. And if they did judge me, I would want to choose the three times in which we were to make that judgment. But apparently Thomas didn't have the luxury of making the choice on what the three statements were that were to be recorded of what he said. People are complex, and we really can never put a tag on anyone and say that we've figured them out. And the same is particularly true of the apostles, whom we know so little. But this is how people have figured out Thomas. If you were to read most of the different commentators telling us about the life of Thomas, what they will tell us is that we can discover in Thomas someone who was a pessimistic doubter who only saw the dark side on everything. He is the one who is the original doubting Thomas. That's who he is, and that's how we know him, and that's the kind of the infamy that's been put upon Thomas. But Revelation chapter 20 describes to us a day when a new heaven and a new earth will be created and that God will allow a heavenly or a new Jerusalem, heaven, to literally descend and come upon this new earth. And there the redeemed of God will spend eternity with Jesus Christ and they will go out in and out of that city of blessing. And it says of that city that the gates of that city shall have over them the name of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the foundations of the city, the foundation point of that city, will have on the names of them, the names of the twelve apostles of Jesus Christ, the founders of the church that Jesus said, I will come and build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so when we get to heaven and we go around and we read the different names on those foundations, one of the names on those foundation stones for the eternal city will be Thomas which means that Thomas is something more than a pessimistic doubter who just sees the dark side of everything. There's something more to Thomas than that. Yes, Jesus worked with regular people. He used imperfect individuals, flawed individuals, but he used them because he saw within them a greatness that he knew that he could bring out of them. He chose people because he saw what he could make of them in spite of what they were in their natural dispositions. He saw a greatness in Thomas. And the fact is, I want you to know this, whether you know it or not, Jesus sees greatness in you as well. He does. And he longs and he desires to take you into his hands and mold you and shape you and in your submission and surrender to him to draw out that greatness. So this morning, we're going to look at the life of Thomas. And it's going to be easy for us to detect his flaws everyone else has as well. They're fairly obvious in the three statements he makes. But we're going to, along with seeing what some of his flaws were, we're going to try to focus in on some of the positive points, those shining points, those aspects where Jesus saw the great potential in Thomas that Jesus wanted to draw out from him. And we're going to 
praise and thank God that he is the God of supreme insight in the lives of people. This morning we're simply going to look at the passage we've read in John chapter 11, and I think maybe you noticed Thomas in that passage. It was a long passage, but if you look closely, you'll see that Thomas actually speaks up. He says something, and I think you'll find it in verse 16 where Thomas speaks. We'll look at verse 16, and the passage is just surrounding that passage. They don't understand all that he's saying. It seems very clear. If he says that Lazarus is asleep and I'm going to go wake him up, and then he explains to them, what I mean is Lazarus is dead, my question is this, if they understood that, what should they naturally understand that waking him up should mean? The disciples should understand that this means Jesus is going up to raise Lazarus from the dead. They've already seen him do this at least on two other occasions, but for some reason they're still confused, and they don't get it, and they don't understand it, and they don't recognize that what Jesus is planning on doing is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus actually says not only this, he says, listen, Lazarus was asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Guys, what I mean is he's dead, but I'm glad that he is because your faith is going to be built up by what you see happening there. Now, it ought to be fairly clear what Jesus has in mind, what it is that Jesus is going to accomplish. Here's our setting. Jesus gives this great word of encouragement that you're with me in the middle of the day, so don't worry. Another word of a promise. I'm going to go and raise this man from the dead. And having given all this encouragement in the middle of all this promise, Thomas demonstrates that he totally misses everything that Jesus has said. He totally misses the encouragement. He totally misses the promise. He says, all right, let's all go with Jesus and die. Let's go up with him. Look, if he's intent on going up there, let's go with him and let's die with him. It's as if Thomas has looked into the future. He's taken a survey of the reality of the landscape around them, and the realistic attitude within him has determined that death is all that waits before them. He's heard the arguments of the disciples explaining why they should not go up there, and he stopped listening after that. That's all that's filled his mind. His mind has wandered off thinking about all the dangers that are waiting before them. And now when Thomas speaks, you, you've got to recognize Thomas is actually contradicting. He is brushing aside everything that Jesus has just said. Fellas, he said, don't worry, you stick with me. We're in the light of the day and I'll take you. I know what's ahead of us. It's still daytime. Let's go up there and guys, I'm just going to go and wake up a friend from his sleep. And if you don't understand that, that means he's dead, but it's okay. It's good because your faith is going to be built up by what I just do, what I'm going to do with this man. And Thomas says, at this great statement, these great words of Jesus, all right, well, let's just go up and die with him. Let's just go up and die with him, guys. Thomas has totally, totally missed everything that Jesus is saying here. Folks, there's a warning for us in all this, and the warning is this. You see, Thomas was focused on the circumstances. Thomas knows what has already unfolded there and knows what lies ahead of him there. He's heard the rumors. He knows the plans that are being made to take Jesus' life. He even has heard Jesus talk about the fact that this is going to happen. Jesus has already by now been telling them that there are individuals who are seeking his life, and they're going to take his life. And Thomas is gathering and pulling all this together and looking at all the circumstances, and he's listening intently to it. But he's listening so intently to the circumstances of his life around him that he is incapable of hearing the encouraging words of God and the promises of God as well. Have you ever been in that place? Where you're so overwhelmed by your circumstances and by what's laying before you or by what your present experience is, that you are incapable of hearing God's own word of promise, God's own word of encouragement. We need to get in that point where we aren't 
allowing our circumstances to dictate how we approach our lives. We need to understand that God is in control of every circumstance and that every circumstance is an opportunity that God is giving us to be glorified in our lives. We need in every circumstance and every situation to be able to hear Jesus saying words like, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Abide in me. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will produce much fruit. There's encouragement here that he's giving us. And there are promises that he's spoken as well. He said things like, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. What that means is this, in every situation, in every circumstance, in every place where we're in, we can know the presence of Christ in our life. We can experience the power of Christ in our life. And we can, through those circumstances, in those circumstances, be transformed to be dynamic testaments of the victory and the blessing and the goodness and the grace of God. We can be witnesses to the world around us. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise. Go to traincpe.org to gain an appreciation for the ministry we are sending out to many nations around the globe. Again, go to traincpe.org to learn more and please consider supporting the work. If you'd like more information, you can also find a way there to contact us and we'd be delighted to share with you more personally what God is doing through our ministry with you and even your local church. Well, thanks for joining us. I look forward to our next time gathering around the bread of life. Until then, may God bless you.